Uh, thank you, Mark. Like uh, Mark said, uh, we've known him pretty much his whole life, uh, the Andres family. We um, met them in Mount Oak. My wife was part of Mount Oak, and then I was part of Mount Oak, was called into the ministry out of Mount Oak, uh, and uh, just a, a wonderful connection there with folks. Um, I can remember uh, Mark's parents saying on one occasion, we thought we were really good parents, and then we had Mark. Um, and, you know, yeah. yeah. So good morning. Uh, as I said in the first service, I haven't been on the stage since Doug Osterhaus's funeral. And um, stepping up in here this morning was a little emotional for me. That was a painful day uh, to be here. I really am very happy to be here. Uh, my understanding is you guys have, what, 10 weeks uh, where your pastor's on sabbatical. Let me just say I took a sabbatical for the first time in 20 years about Three years ago, it was wonderful. It's a wonderful investment, both for him and for the church. Uh, this has been a difficult couple of years across a lot of different spectrums. And particularly uh, in the church, there's been a lot of uncertainty. And to sort of regroup and go forward, uh, I think, is a wonderful thing. I think you all will see benefits from it. And so I'm thankful for you for giving him that opportunity. I want to talk today about my favorite disciple, who is Peter, and I want to talk a little bit about the process that Peter went through, sort of his ordination process, kind of what he went through. Now, as we think about things, we tend to look back and romanticize how things were. Any of you do that? You look back, why did it used to be so good? Why is it hard now? And we look back at the days of Jesus and we think, how awesome would that have been for us to be there and be with them? And oh, it must have just been all so easy and so great. I think when you lean into the story a little though, you find that maybe it wasn't quite as easy as sometimes we make it. Um, I love Peter. He's my favorite. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but he's my favorite. He's still alive, not on earth, but he's still alive. I'm pretty sure I'm probably not his favorite. And uh, it is possible that when I meet him, he goes, what would you say all that stuff about me for? Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Um, the thing I like about him is that he often wrote checks with his mouth that his character was unable to cash. Any of you ever have that issue? In your enthusiasm, you say things, and maybe you mean it, but when it really push comes to shove, you can't deliver. That's what happened to Peter. And it was in that place, in that place of sort of brokenness, that he found God's grace in really a powerful way. I want to kind of go back through the scripture that Mark read, and I want to just kind of point out a couple of things. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? What's the scuttlebutt? Who are people saying that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, 
or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked his small group of followers. Who do you say that I am? Talk about a loaded question. Who do you say I am? I wonder if Jesus were here, if he wouldn't ask you, who do you say I am? Simon Peter, my favorite disciple, pipes up, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. He gets a new name. There's this naming thing that happens again and again in the scripture. And he gets this new name. In fact, One of the kind of cool little verses in Revelation is that God is going to give each of us our own name. He's going to name us. He gets a new name. You're Peter, and on this rock, on you, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's giving him authority. You are the gatekeeper. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What an interesting thing. In fact, tonight as you're trying to fall asleep, if you want to be thinking about something, you can be thinking about why did Jesus do that so often? There's so many stories where people say, you're the Messiah, and he said, yep, don't tell anybody. Why why was that? You can think about that. Talk about a pretty good day for Peter. This is a pretty good day. Think about it. It's always risky. It is always risky to go all in following somebody else. It's particularly risky to leave the family business, to leave the life that you built and that you've already, you know, and to follow this guy. And even as sort of amazing and unique and mesmerizing and powerful as Jesus must have been, it's still a big risk. And here is Jesus saying to Peter, hey, you got it. You got it. Think about this. When Jesus first said to Peter, follow me, somehow their interactions up to that point made Peter think, this is a risk worth taking. And now here he is, he gets the satisfaction. He's pleased his teacher by getting recognition. He's given an insightful answer, and he gets validation that he has made a good life choice. He gambled on Jesus, and it looks like he's winning And now he's gotten a new name, and now he's gotten a new title, and now he gets to be the rock upon which the church is built. I'm not a fisherman anymore. I'm not the next in a line of generations of fishermen. I'm not just Simon. Now 
I'm Peter. It's a really good day. Not only that, but what did Jesus say to him? Listen, you have heard from the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He has spoken to you and you clearly understood him. I mean, I'm guessing that Peter was like the rest of us, enthusiastic, but also with his doubts and his questions and his fears. But what I so love about this passage is the next couple of verses. Look what happens in the next verse. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. And I want to just take a quick aside here. This is a whole nother sermon. In fact, it's a whole nother sermon series. But I think this foreknowledge that Jesus had is is an important piece of the story. And I think it's an important piece of the story because it's important that Jesus knew what was going to happen because it was important that he decided. He had to choose. It's an important piece of the story that Jesus chose the cross. It didn't just happen to him. He knew what was coming. And if you tend to be one of those people who think, well... (laughs) Easy choice. He was God. This is what he would, this is what he came for. I would remind you that when he actually made the choice in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is described as being in agony and being in such an emotional state that he was literally sweating blood. Not an easy choice. Not an easy choice at all. And so he starts telling the disciples, this is what's got to happen to me. And Peter, my buddy, he took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, if you were making this story up after the fact and you were going to make Peter the hero of the story, would you put this part in there? And then look what Jesus says to him. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Man, talk about what a switch. You go from high up. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. And Jesus responds, on this rock, I will build my church. You go from that level to get behind me, Satan, all in one day? That's a big swing for him. That's that's kind of a tough place. Jump quickly then to Matthew 14. In Matthew 14, to kind of go through the whole chapter really quick, John the Baptist gets beheaded Jesus says to his disciples, I want to go away by ourselves so we can grieve. Uh, They get to across the lake. They find a big crowd there. Jesus has compassion on them. So instead of grieving, he teaches them. We end up with the feeding of the 5,000. Afterwards, he puts the disciples back in the boat, said, go back across the lake. 
he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. In the third watch, which would be 3 to 6 a.m., they are still fighting to get across the lake, and Jesus comes and walks on the water. The disciples, seeing him walking on the water, do what any of us would do. They freak out, right? Because people don't walk on water. And they cry out, and they're afraid. And Peter, not thinking it through, because you know he didn't think this through, if you think about what he said. He said, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you. That's, there's a lot of risk there. And Peter literally gets out of the boat and begins walking on the water. And then it says, he looked at the waves, he felt the wind, and he remembered people don't walk on water. And he started to sink and he cried out and Jesus had to reach out and grab him and save him. And what Jesus says to him is, you of little faith. You of little faith. Why did you doubt? You were just doing it. Why did you doubt? Talk about a high. I'm walking on water. I'm doing this amazing thing. God's empowering me to do this miraculous thing. I'm sinking in fear and doubt and have to be rescued. And I have to be rescued. So there's this again, this big swing. Jump to Matthew 26, the Last Supper. And I'm just kind of flying through this. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And Peter responds, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples, they all say the same thing. We won't disown you. What are you talking about? I'll, I'll die with you. Then they go to Gethsemane. And by the way, if you're facing a difficult situation, the pattern of prayer in Gethsemane is a wonderful pattern. What does Jesus say? I'll paraphrase. I don't want to do this. I really don't want to do this. If you can figure out another way to make this happen, I'm all for it. But not what you want. Not what I want, what you want. That's the pattern. There is nothing wrong with saying, I don't want to do this. God, if this is what you have for me, come on. I would prefer you work this out in some other way, but not what I want, what you want. Peter and the disciples who Jesus asked to pray with them fall asleep. And then they show up to arrest him. And what does Peter do? He jumps up, he pulls out his sword, and he cuts off a guy's ear. How do you cut off someone's ear with a sword? Have you thought about that? Did you like sneak up behind him and do this? I imagine that he was swinging at the guy's head and kind of missed. It said then, Jesus healed the man's ear. And then he turned to Peter, and in something that's so interesting, he said, put away your sword. Don't you know 
that at a single word from me, my Father will send 12 legions of angels to fight for me. A legion, by the way, is 6,000. So at one word from me, my Father will send 72,000 angels to fight for me. How many of you want to fight 72,000 angels? Anybody? How many of you want to fight one angry angel? Again, this thing of choice. He had the choice. He could step away. And then Jesus allows himself to be arrested. And Peter follows him into the courtyard of the high priest where in the middle of the night they're having a trial. And around the fire, someone recognizes him and says, hey, weren't you with him? And he says, no. And then someone else says, no, you're a Galilean. Weren't you were with him? And he says, no. And then if you compare Matthew's version and Luke's version, you hear that a third time someone asked, said, weren't you with him? You're one of them. And Matthew tells us that that Peter called curses down on himself. He started swearing, I don't know him. And then we get to this verse in Luke. Peter replied, I don't, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. He goes from I'll die for you and swinging the sword to denying with curses that he knew Jesus at all. He had written checks with his mouth that he didn't have the character to cash. But I propose to you that it was absolutely impossible for Peter to be the rock upon which the church was built without first coming to the end of himself and weeping bitterly. That Peter couldn't become the rock until he'd had that experience and found God's grace there. He couldn't be it until he got to the end of himself. In the same way, I propose it was be impossible for Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to go through everything that he went through without sitting for three days blind in Damascus after his conversion. Or how about Jonah would never ever have been able to preach in such a way that all Nineveh, a great city, would repent if he hadn't spent time in the belly of a fish. Or how about Elijah? He would never have been able to be caught up in a chariot of fire if he hadn't, in running from Jezebel, wandered by himself into the desert and prayed that God would kill him. God, I'm done. I just want to die. Or how about Joseph, who ended up saving not just his family, but Egypt? that he never would have been ready for that without languishing in jail for two years after interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. 
a prison that he never should have been in to begin with. Or how about Jacob who gets renamed Israel? What's he do? He wrestles all night with God. And as he's about to be released, he says, God bless me. What's God's blessing to him? He puts his hip out. So that Jacob then walked with a limp. An interesting blessing. You see it over and over again. People trying to serve God in their own strength and God trying to bring them to the end of themselves through adversity who reveals who they really are. And yet so many of us try so hard to avoid adversity. We run from it and we try to control and schedule our lives and keep it far from us. And when it does come, we say, God, what are you doing to me? What's wrong with you? And we don't allow ourselves to fully engage our faith. And we try to hide from the truth that our character falls short in so many ways. And the true condition of our hearts isn't nearly as pretty as we pretend and push out. You want a quick example? What did you learn about yourself and your faith in these last two and a half years as we've gone through the pandemic? How did you respond? How was your fear? How was your general level of anxiety? What did you do to calm yourself or to medicate yourself in the midst of all of that? I live in Florida. Florida and Maryland responded very differently to those things. How did you manage that? How are you doing in the midst of all of this sort of, and this is my own description, if I'm offensive to anyone, my apologies. I believe we're in a season of practicing chicken little politics. If my opponent wins, the sky will fall and your life will be over. And we've gotten very polarized. How are you doing with that? How are you doing at loving your neighbor? Is it us and them? How's your heart? What's the stress of all of that revealing about you? Where is it? Where's Jesus in that attitude? But what happens next to Peter? That's the real story. It really is. You would think that Jesus would be disappointed. My most difficult moment, and you failed me so badly, you would think he would look for someone else to lead his church than fearful, weak Peter. You would think Peter's denials would have simply disqualified him from God's service. But look what happens post-resurrection. Jesus is, or Peter's fishing. Jesus shows up on the floor, or on the shore, on the floor, on the shore. By the way, um, apparently post-resurrection bodies, you can disguise yourself in some way because they didn't recognize him at first. But then Peter goes in and there's fish and Jesus has this conversation with them. He says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my 
lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And if you want to know if this story is true, you would never put that last line in there. Peter still didn't get it. How many denials were there? There were three. How much restoration is there? There's three. And what does Peter do when Jesus asks him the third time? He gets hurt. What do you mean? I already told you I did. Why are you asking me again? He doesn't still get it. Right? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God, which tradition tells us he was crucified upside down in Rome. Then he said to him, follow me. What did he say to him when he first met him? Was one of the first things Jesus said? Follow me. When Peter was innocent and full of potential, follow me. What does Jesus say to him after three years of being with him and Peter's most egregious failure? What's he say to him? Follow me. There's an important lesson here for those of you who were sure that your failures have disqualified you from God's service. For those of you who are sure that your character issues are too much and that God is done with you. Jesus continues to say, follow me. In the midst of your shame and your bitter weeping, the word is follow me. But what's even more frightening than folks who are there is how many of us are running around in our own strength saying, I'll die for you, Jesus. And I'm willing to take out my sword and chop away at your enemies. But we're in denial because we are absolutely terrified to bring the part of ourselves and our character that struggle with fear and with doubt and with unbelief into God's presence. How many of us are terrified that Jesus will turn and look at us in our failure and our weakness and we will be exposed for who we really are. And then he'll just be disappointed. And he'll look for someone else who can serve him better than fearful, weak us. He'll look for someone else who isn't disqualified by their messiness. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't afraid of Peter's failure. And he's not afraid of yours. And while your weakness 
when it gets exposed, you may have to enter a season of bitter weeping. And how many of us, again, so tightly try to control our lives that we just don't want to get there. But it's in that season of bitter weeping that you will find God's grace in such a way that it will anchor you. Because when you know God's unfathomable grace there, you'll know it everywhere. And the crazy thing is, that end of yourself, it can come from anywhere. All different parts of your life. I don't have time to do this and I'm already a little long. Oh well, I'm a guest preacher, you never have to see me again. But for me, I grew up in an alcoholic family. My role in the alcoholic family system was scapegoat or shame bearer. Overcoming the shame that I took on as a kid has been impossible for me and has brought me to the end of myself to find God's grace there. Try. Another weird place is food. I've medicated myself with food for most of my adult life. I was 190 pounds 40 years ago when I got married. I've been as high as 321. I went from 280 to 320 for 20 years. And just knew I couldn't control it. It brought me to the end of myself. But once you're willing, once you're willing to drag your entire self, your naked, malformed, ashamed self into His presence, and in that abject state to find His faithful, His unwavering, His unbridled grace and love for you, you will be anchored in a way that right now seems like a dream. And no matter what happens after that, no matter what storms come, you will be safe. So take heart, brothers and sisters, take heart. Don't be surprised if the deeper you try to push into Jesus, the deeper He turns around and pushes you back into yourself. Because let's just admit it, we're the problem. And He's trying to help us to be fixed. And the only way out is through. The only way out is through. Through your darkness. Through your brokenness. Out of the shadows and into the light, so that you can know the truth that even if your worst fears are realized, that you are loved. God's grace is still there. That's Peter's story. That's my story. That's God's story. It's the way that He deals with us. Don't be afraid to go all in. Don't be afraid to enter into God's presence naked and ashamed. Don't be afraid. Because if you do, 
if you can find the courage to do it. God will meet you there. And on the other side of that, you'll be able to show His glory in a way that is unique to you and impossible until you do. God has created every one of you to uniquely show His glory through who you are and your story. When we stop trying to control it all, when we surrender, we find His grace. So take heart. The goodness of God is for you. Let's pray. Well, God, I'm just so thankful that we don't have to be perfect. I'm so thankful that you continue to invite us time and time again to come into your presence just like we are. I'm just so thankful that you're not afraid of our weakness and our brokenness, of the things in us that aren't really pretty. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are um, just seeking to be deeper and deeper into you. I pray that you would lead us not just into, but through those places. May your grace be totally sufficient for us there. And Father, I pray that you would use us. I pray that you would use us individually and collectively. I pray for this church that you would continue to allow it to be a light on a hill where people can come and know you and find you and get as deep into you as they possibly could want to. Father, I pray that you would put your blessing there, but let it start with us so that we might be fully integrated, devoted people who love you with all that we have and who know that we know that we know that we're enough because of your grace. May it be so.